Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me this week, as every week, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at the brokers Winterflood Securities. Simon, let's kick off this week with a quick review of what's happened in the market. So I think it's fair to say that it's been a slightly quieter week in the, in the marketplace, certainly in terms of market direction. I mean, volumes are down, and we'd expect that to be the case now as we go into the summer. The, the old share uh, ended up in negative territory for the week, probably about 1% or so down. Investment companies did a bit better, probably up about 1%, uh, and the sector average discounts kind of hovering around about the 6% mark, which is wider, obviously, than when we started the year, when it was at 1%. So as you say, we're now 10 days into July. We're heading into the summer season. Uh, It's a good moment perhaps to look back over the first six months of the year. It's something that uh, market commentators always do, as if six months is only an arbitrary figure, of course, but it is one that people look at. So let's have a look at what's been happening in the investment trust sector over the six months as a whole. It's obviously been a very, uh, well, the word roller coaster would be a good way of describing it, would have been invented for this very... uh, experience. But let's look at what's happened over the six months. We know, obviously, it's been the period when the virus struck, if you like. And since then, we've had the reaction to the virus. But tell us more, Simon. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the investment trust sector, I mean, there's obviously been a lot of talk about V-shaped recoveries uh, with regard to the, the general economy. But in some ways, the investment trust sector has kind of already got there. So if you look at actually how it's performed this year, uh, I mean, the UK market in the form of the FTSE All Shares it was down 17.5% for the first half of the year. But actually, the investment companies sector or the index that encapsulates uh, the vast majority of investment companies was down uh, only about 4% uh, or so. So a significant outperformance. Uh, and the reason for that is actually, if you look uh, under the bonnet about who uh, actually comprises the investment trust sector, now a lot of the global funds, uh, and particularly funds such as uh, Scottish Mortgage Trust did particularly well, the technology funds such as Allianz Tech and Polo Capital Tech, all other funds such as worldwide healthcare. So it has been a decent period for investment trust companies. As we've already said, we did see um, the the sector average discount uh, widen out quite spectacularly uh, during March. It went from 1% to the turn of the year and touched briefly 22% during March, which is a significant derating. And we haven't seen anything like that since uh, the global financial crisis 12 years ago. But there has been a partial recovery since then. And we're probably, as I said earlier, about 6% or so now. Yes, it is interesting looking at the uh, share price performance, first of all, the total return on, let's state, the largest, 20 largest investment companies. I mean, looking down the list, you've mentioned the ones that have done well, Scottish Mortgage, Photo Capital Technology have done spectacularly well. If you had those, you've done extremely well. But equally, on the other side of the ledger, there's been quite a few well-known names among the larger ones which have done uh, still relatively poorly, down 10% or more. I can see, uh, surprisingly, RIT Capital Partners is there. Mercantile Investment Trust, uh, Witten, City of London, another one of the uh, AIC's famous dividend heroes, and uh, Murray International. They're all down by 10% or more, in some cases even 20%. So it has been very much a mixed bag, has it not? I think it's fair to say that um, those investment trusts focused on the UK market have struggled this year because, uh, frankly, the UK market has struggled this year. So if you look at the UK versus the rest of the world, I mean, the US is now up in absolute terms, where obviously the UK has, has lagged it. Uh, and unsurprisingly, you know, the City of London's, the Mercantile have also struggled. A number of investment trusts have been derated as well. So you mentioned RIC Capital Partners. 
it attempts to preserve shareholders' capital, but obviously grow it over the long term. It started the year on, on a premium rating, has actually been derated, not massively, but probably about 4 or 5% discount now. And that's the reason why you, you're seeing it down more than 10%. And, and that'll be true for a number of the names on the list as well. Yes, it is interesting looking at the sectors. I mean, the standout feature of the sectoral performance uh, in the first half there, just looking now at NAVs, not necessarily just the share prices, but uh, the UK sectors are all down at the bottom. The UK equity sectors are all down at the bottom. Equity income, UK small cap, UK all companies, those are the main UK equity sectors. And they've all down in NAV terms by getting on for 20%, which is a reflection, as you say, of how the UK market is very much out of favour with investors at the moment, certainly compared to other regions, if you like. Why do you think the UK has been performing so badly? What do you think it might take to have a turnaround in the performance of the UK subsectors in the AIC indices and the FTSE indices? I mean, when you compare the performance of the UK market versus the US market, uh, and there is a big, big difference certainly this year, but there has been for a while, some of that is a reflection of the makeup of the different markets. So obviously in the UK, we have quite a high weighting to the oil sector, which has had difficulty this year, as we know, with a very low oil price. Um, we've got quite a high exposure to financials. What we don't necessarily have a lot of in the UK are kind of big tech companies, and that's where the US has done incredibly well. So if you look at the leadership of the US, and this would be true of global equity indices as well. It's really been incredibly narrow. There have been these big, large, invariably US tech stocks that have driven the performance. Uh, and unfortunately, there aren't too many of those uh, floating around the UK marketplace. So what changes? Well, if you talk to managers who, who run UK equities, they'll tell you that they think valuations are very, very cheap. Now, to be fair, they've been saying this for some time. So this is not new news. Um, but they think that eventually, you know, value will come out of the UK marketplace. And there are some, uh, undoubtedly, some good good growth prospects as well. But the fact that we've seen so many dividend cuts and suspension in the UK marketplace, uh, I mean, some of the estimates are about 40, 45% now cuts across uh, UK market. And, um, I, you know, I read a report recently, they said only a third of UK dividends are safe this year. In other words, we could see further cuts as we progress through the year. And clearly, uh, income is still a big requirement. It might be that the, the UK market is a bit bumpy for a while yet. Yes, I mean, it has to be said that we're coming into a six-month period when I'm afraid for those without iron constitutions, we're going to be going back into the Brexit saga again. And whatever your views about that, that is going to have a, a way on sentiment, I think, over the next few months. Uh, we're getting to the crunch point yet again. The transition arrangement will come to an end at the end of this year. And at the moment, there's no sign of an agreement to replace that. So we're going to have a lot of issues around that in the next six months. Uh, and as you say, the, the structure of the UK market is working against it as well. If we look at the discount, so you mentioned the discounts having settled back overall in this range of between 5 and 10%. Uh, but if we look at the subsectors there, we've still got these uh, infrastructure and renewable energy trusts and to some extent, the global sector, all trading either at a premium or close to par on average. And uh, a lot of other sectors are, well, how are they trading in terms of their historic range or over the last year, shall we say? Yeah, so I think, you're, of course, you're absolutely right. Infrastructure, particularly renewable and, uh, to be fair, the mainstream infrastructure funds are, are trading very well. Now, they've been very attractive yield plays for a number of years. And I think the consensus is that they will continue to be so, hence their, their strong rating. 
most other of the leading subsectors are trading on a little bit of a wider discount or, or uh, weaker ratings than we've seen in recent years, but not extensively. The exceptions to that would be in the property space. Uh, UK commercial property has been significantly uh, derated this year, and I think we can understand the reasons why that might be the case. And that's true for private equity as well, though in both cases, we are working, as we talked about in previous podcasts, on uh, out-of-date NAVs. So we're still waiting to kind of get through uh, NAV valuations. We've got mostly now at the end of Q1. We won't get Q2 for a little while yet. And I think the expectation is that we could see some NAV falls. In other words, those discounts might look quite wide at the moment when we actually get the NAVs for those particular subsectors. They might not be quite as wide as they seem at the moment. Yes, I mean, it's fair to say that quite apart from the impact of the virus, it's true to say that the uh, the updates on NAVs from private equity and, uh, and to a less extent property, they tend to come out later relative to the end period date than some of the uh, trusts which have listed investments. Well, we have heard quite a few updates from the property sector this week. We have got to the end of the second quarter and some property trusts are coming out quite promptly to tell us about their collection with rent, ex, uh, their rent experience, uh, which of course is fundamental to their ability to generate good yields. So who have we heard from and uh, what have they been saying, Simon? A whole range is the answer. And uh, those that have uh, been quick to report, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, have invariably had pretty good news. So Urban Logistics REIT, uh, and the tick on that one is SHED, S-H-E-D, which is uh, certainly appropriate. They've announced this week that 98% of their rent due for the quarter of September has already been collected, and they, uh, they expect to collect the remaining 2%. So we can take that as uh, pretty decent news. Uh, Tri-Tax Big Box REIT, um, which again is uh, in a similar kind of uh, space in the property market. Uh, they expect that 97% of their Q3 uh, 2020 rents will be collected by the end of August. So again, uh, I think we can take that as, as pretty positive. Also, Edison Property Investment Company, they uh, announced that 75% of their rent due for Q2 collections collected to date. And that is pretty comparable where they would where they were this time last year. So I think they are reasonably confident about the outlook there. So I think the kind of the broad picture on the property side is on those that have reported pretty decent. We've also seen some of the more specialist funds. So Impact Healthcare REIT and Target Healthcare REIT um, give updates on their rent collection. So it's 100% of rent payable in advance has been collected in the case of Impact Healthcare. And it's 96% of rent payable uh, in respect of recent quarter dates has been collected by Target Healthcare REIT. So as I said, <laughs> these are all specialist property companies that you would expect to be faring reasonably well, uh, you know, despite the situation that we're seeing. I think what's going to be more telling is when we see those that expose more, particularly to uh, retail property, when they start to report. I think that that's going to be more telling because you would expect those uh, property investment companies to be more impacted. Yes, and we've been hearing this week about uh, planned store closures by uh, the likes of John Lewis and Marks and Spencers and so on. So uh, there's clearly is pressure on that sector, as we know already from the, they've reported the broader property companies. So I think investors will be looking very uh, anxiously at their updates on the second quarter. Obviously, in the third quarter will also be important because we'll see the effects of lockdown being eased and how quickly the, the high street in particular can get back to any kind of normality or indeed whether they've lost a lot of more business permanently to online retailers. So that's going to be a very important thing for us to track, particularly for those interested in income yield. 
Let's move on and talk a little bit about Asia, first of all. Now, I mean, a number of uh, Asian investment trusts have uh, been reporting or giving updates uh, this week and in the last few days. Give us a picture of what's, what the story's been there. Let's start with um, Aberdeen Emerging Markets, and maybe we could throw in Atlantic Japan Growth, Invesco Asia, and a newcomer called Nippon Active Value. Let's just take um, them one by one. Uh, let's start with uh, Aberdeen Emerging Markets. So they had interim results out to the end of April. So that's a six-month period. Um, they struggled a little bit. Their anything was down uh, 11% or so during that time against uh, a fall of 8% for their benchmark. Um, this is a fund of funds, so a fund of emerging market funds. Uh, and their fund selection was, was positive in the period. But unfortunately, um, their asset allocation detracted. They were underweight China. And actually, Greater China now is a, is a large proportion of that emerging market benchmark. So that was the kind of key detractor. It's a relatively concentrated portfolio. They have 29 holdings. Uh, and actually, just under half, about 45% or so, are actually in closed-end funds. So the investment team there at uh, Aberdeen Standard Investments uh, are hugely experienced and very good at taking advantage of where discounts uh, widen out. So as you might imagine, they were very busy during that March period, taking advantage of some pretty uh, extended discounts. Uh, they also have an enhanced uh, dividend policy, so it's funded by income and capital, uh, and so that gives them a prospective yield of just short of four percent. Okay, so but that uh, just of course highlights one of the problems if you've got a very broad remit like emerging markets, uh, which is a global remit in their case. Uh, if you get some of the regional allocations wrong, then it doesn't matter how good your fund or stock picking is, you put yourself at risk. But some of the others are a bit more focused. So we, let's go on to Invesco Asia Trust. That's IAT. What have they been saying? So they had their full year, so 12-month results to the end of April. They also struggled a little bit. Their NAV total return was down 10% compared with a full 4% for its uh, benchmark. They got caught out, basically. I think they port the portfolio was positioned for economic recovery at the, the turn of the year, and then obviously COVID-19 hit. Uh, they won't be alone uh, in being positioned like that. But what they've done is they've increased uh, the exposure to China and, and to some names in, in technology and consumer discretionary, uh, and they've sold down a little bit their financials exposure. And they actually uh, managed to uh, increase their dividend as well, and not too many investment trusts are doing that at the moment. And they're trading on about a 10% discount at the moment, is that something That's like correct. that? That's correct, yeah. It's, it's around about that level, yeah. Okay, so let's move on to Atlantis Japan Growth. Now, this is an uh, investment trust which has a, quite a long history. Uh, it used to be run by a manager called Ed Murner, as I recall. But it's um, struggled a bit more recently, I think. What, what have they been up to? This used to be um, a real star fund, as you might remember, from, yes. from many years ago, uh, and uh, went through a period, had bad performance, um, saw a lot of contraction. Uh, and so now its its market cap is just about 100 million or so. So it's it's quite diminished in in size. A lady called Teiko Satashi, and I've undoubtedly pronounced that incorrectly, but she's been running the portfolio for uh, a number of years. They had annual results out to the end of April. Their NAV was down 3% compared with a rise of 1% for the benchmark. So they've, they've underperformed. But the portfolio is, is quite growth orientated. So um, there's quite a few holdings in hardware and software technology, healthcare products. So very much Japanese small cap plays and hopefully a higher growth. They too have um, adopted an enhanced dividend policy. So this idea that you, you, you pay your dividend out, an element out of capital as well as the revenue that you receive in. Um, so their new quarterly dividend uh, rate, again, equates to a yield just under under 4%. 
So um, there's been a lot of corporate activity with this particular fund over the years. And so they've done a number of redemption offers, um, but they've, their next continuation votes uh, not until 2023 now. So three years time. Right. So we've heard basically three of these uh, trusts have been struggling a little bit uh, in, the, in the market conditions. They weren't perhaps nimble enough to cope with the virus. And of course, it has been difficult because you know, Asia has done, having been the, uh, where the virus started, has actually turned out to have been one of the uh, better regions at handling the impact of the virus. Uh, but to mention also to Nippon Active Value, which is a new trust that I'm not really familiar with. And I believe it has a rather unique distinction at the moment. Well, yes, it's the only IPO that we've seen in the investment trust sector so far this year. Uh, so in, in the first few months of this year, this one got away, raised just over £100 million, 103 to be precise. Uh, and this week they gave uh, an update. So they've been trading now for five months. And they've got, as their name would suggest, a kind of more activist approach in terms of the Japanese market. So they've completed building positions in six of their initial 20 target companies and are about three quarters of the way through building uh, another five. So um, they've still got a little way to go. They're about 67% or so uh, invested at the moment. And so they were just bringing shareholders up to date with where they're at. Still very early days in this one. It's trading um, just a little bit below its, its IPO price. So it hasn't, hasn't moved too much since launch. Of course, one of the selling points for them and indeed for another investment trust, which raised some money uh, last year, was it the year before, the uh, run by what used to be known British Empire Securities team, now got a different name, I believe. Uh, the basic idea there is, is it not that um, Japan was notorious for many years for not having shareholder value at the, at the top of its uh, management priority list? Uh, but Mr. Abe, the Prime Minister, has been very keen to uh, push corporate change in Japan. And so there have been emergence not just of uh, trusted invest in Japan generally, but particularly of trusts like this one, which, as you say, is hoping to put pressure on management to do more shareholder-friendly things like uh, pay higher dividends and have less inefficient balance sheets. Do you think there'll be more like this? Is this going to be an, uh, a trend that will continue, do you think? I think ultimately it will depend on results. If, if companies such as Nippon Active Value and uh, AVI Japan Opportunity, which I think is the one you're referring to, yeah. if they can demonstrate decent performance using that kind of activist approach, then undoubtedly more capital will follow, more funds will be launched. While we're on this subject, one of the themes that you've been talking about this week, I know, Simon, is about uh, the extent of rationalisation in the uh, investment company sector. There is a continual process of... Uh, if you like, regeneration and renewal would be a kind of positive way of putting it. Perhaps another way of putting it would be there have been a lot of comings and goings, trusts that have not done so well and are uh, rather like uh, Atlantis Japan growth and have been shrinking or maybe exiting. You've done a little summary of that. Just tell us the highlights of, of that. Is it more or, or less than is typical in an average year for the investment trust sector, what we've been seeing so far? Well, it's always a feature of the investment trust sector, regardless of the times. You always see a degree of uh, comings and goings or rationalization. I think possibly this year it may have been accelerated a bit by the obvious market conditions. What I think is particularly interesting this time around is I think boards have become more open to shareholders' concerns to the point that um, they have, after discussions with shareholders, been quite happy to recommend that shareholders vote against continuation. So rather than fight it to the bitter end, uh, boards seem more uh, realistic now. There's a few examples of that, such as Henderson Alternative Strategies, which, um, again, is a, is a fund of more specialist-type funds. Uh, it's fair to say that its performance was on the disappointing side, and that was certainly kind of shareholders' 
uh, viewpoint and following discussions with the board they decided that perhaps it had come to adopt a managed wind down process and that was duly passed this week and we've seen a number like that as well there's a continuation vote for JP Morgan Brazil which uh, you know Brazil's been a very tough market and that fund is probably subscale now uh, and the board have recommended that uh, when the AGM comes around in September at the continuation vote there that they've recommended that shareholders vote against continuation. So this kind of recognition that they're probably uh, a little bit subscale. Uh, and again, another one this uh, just recently, SQN, Secured Income, quite a specialist fund, it's fair to say, but the board there uh, suggested that shareholders vote against continuation. So it's a little bit of a theme. We've got more votes coming up. I think probably the most interesting one uh, in the near future is the Gabelli Value Fund. And I think we've probably talked about that before on previous podcasts. And, and this is the one whereby the board is recommending that shareholders vote against continuation. But the, the manager of that fund, uh, it would appear to is taking a slightly different view. Um, and as an affiliated company has quite a large stake in that particular fund, then that's going to be quite an interesting one to watch. Yeah, so rather complicated and uh one suspects uh, would make a, quite a good uh, mini TV drama series, probably. <laughs> Moving on, though, I mean, the alternative for boards, obviously, is, as we've seen also a lot this year, you can change the manager or change the management company, indeed. And one that did that a couple of years ago was an investment trust called Shire's Income. So how has that worked out for, the, uh, for that particular trust where the board took the decision to change the management uh, company? So Shire's income is part of the Aberdeen Standard Investments uh, stable, which is quite a large stable of investment trusts now following the merger. Um, for the last few years, it's been run by uh, Ian Pyle and Charles Luke. Charles Luke's also responsible for Murray Income. And that's a fund that I think is, is quite interesting. It's differentiated by the fact that it's got quite a um, significant element of its portfolio invested in preference shares, which are a little bit different to um, ordinary shares. These are invariably have higher yields. And in fact, the, the average yield on their preference share portfolio is, is above 8%. And it's, uh, it's higher up the capital structure. So it should be a more secure form of investment, at least that's the theory. But what it means is that it enables the investment team just to be a little bit more flexible in terms of where they uh, are looking to invest. And what it also means at the moment, particularly as discussed already, we, we were in this period of uh, dividend suspensions and dividend cuts it takes the pressure off them a little bit. And they would appear to be reasonably confident on the outlook for their yield at the moment, given revenue reserves, given this allocation to preference shares. Uh, and they've got a yield of not too far off of 6% at the moment. Um, so it's it's not a particularly large fund. And it's probably a little bit in the shadow of some of the kind of better known UK equity funds. But that's one that is trading around uh, a premium at the moment. And as I say, it's got a yield, it's actually 5.8% at the moment. Well, we might just mention in passing, though, uh, with a health warning, this is something called the, uh, on the income theme, 24 Income Fund. They have a couple of investment trusts, don't they? Not this particular management team. And they uh, made quite a big splash when they arrived a few years ago. But they invested some very exotic stuff, the kind of stuff that we all had to learn about during the financial crisis. And it's one that I should say you are required to sign a I'm a sophisticated investor declaration before uh, most... Uh, brokers or platforms will allow you to invest in this kind of trust. But uh, just in passing, because to illustrate how there is variety in the investment trust sector uh, in the income space, what, what does 24 Income do and uh, what have they been saying? So they are invested in less liquid, higher yielding asset-backed securities. 
Um, so as you say, if you've got a good memory, you can remember the financial crisis and, and perhaps watch films like The Big Short. Uh, that might ring some bells. But uh, 24, it's fair to say, are a very experienced investment team and they know their way around the kind of European asset-backed securities uh, market. So in terms of their particular portfolio, they've got um, just over half it in what they're called RMBSs, which is a residential mortgage-backed securities, and about 30% or so in CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. So these are more sophisticated securitizations of income streams or debt pools, but they seem to be um, quite excited. As you might imagine, that market saw a bit of turbulence back in March time, but the 24 team uh, have kind of come through that and they think there's a, a bit of an opportunity that exists in their section of the marketplace. But it is a more specialist marketplace. Clearly, the yield that 24 income pros off, which is over 6% at the moment, uh, marks it out. But uh, as you say, there's a, there's a reason why any number of health warnings exist on uh, investors looking to, to, to get involved in that. It would pay to do your homework, I think. You really need to do your homework on something like that. And indeed, you, you need to take professional advice on that. Absolutely. And also, given the history, you know, these types of securities are, by their nature, quite volatile. And if there's something blows up, it can be very painful, as we saw in an earlier period. So it's not one you necessarily uh, will let you uh, buy and hold and let you sleep easily for all time. On the theme, though, of rationalisation and renewal, we have had the good news this week that some trusts have been raising money. A couple we've mentioned before, well, last week we mentioned them, there's Gore Street and uh, Hypnosis. Have we had the results from those? And if so, how have they been getting on with their fundraising? Well, the, the numbers are in. Gore Street Energy Storage raised uh, £24 million, pounds, uh, and this is a relatively new fund. It's a smaller fund, so one would assume that they would be happy with that. They've got a pipeline of energy storage projects, uh, which and they will enable them to build out their portfolio. Uh, in the case of Hypnosis Songs Fund, which is one that uh, has, seems to have captured the interest, they were looking to raise £200 million pounds for a C-share issue, uh, and that number actually came in at £236 million, so above their target size. So that would seem to be a good number. They managed to raise money, I think, on three occasions last year, and they've certainly built that portfolio out since since its IPO a few years ago. Yes, I mean, they have the great advantage at the moment, at least, that they have a unique uh, proposition, which is buying up uh, royalty catalogues of music from which they expect to generate. I mean, it's basically going to be an income play with perhaps a little bit of capital appreciation on the side. Is, is that how they're marketing it, or are they trying to pitch it at a slightly more racy level than that? Income is a very uh, important part of, of the story. But I think also they talk about the idea of um, there being capital appreciation, um, not least because obviously now more and more people are looking to stream their music or whatever type of music that might be. And the, this idea that actually music just becomes a utility, it becomes part of your, your monthly direct debits. Uh, and as a result of that, there is actually um, you know, more money to come back to the owners of these catalogues. So that's the play. So far, they've done very well in raising their money and seem to, as I say, capture people's interest. It'll take a little while before we actually see whether the thesis, if you like, actually of certainly of capital appreciation is borne out by events as they happen. I think we've got one more little sector we might just briefly mention, which is Europe, where I've detected some signs of interest in Europe now as a investment destination. As we think we mentioned last week or the week before, the EU seems to have done, uh, to some people's surprise anyway, quite well at uh, handling the uh, the virus. And indeed, they've made an important step in terms of coordinating uh, transfers across Europe, which is one of the big issues uh, that has dogged them for many years. But in terms of investment in Europe, 
obviously we've heard from European opportunities uh, in the last week because of the Wirecard scandal, but let's talk about another couple of investment trusts uh, which operate there. There's uh, Henderson European Focus, or HEFT, H-E-F-T. Uh, what can you tell us about them? So this is managed by a, a gentleman called John Bennett. He's a very, very experienced uh, investor. And uh, he gave us an update on his portfolio. And it's fair to say that uh, John's probably just struggled a little bit. His long-term record's very good, but he's probably been a little bit out of favor in the last year or two. But he believes that there is a big opportunity now in European equities, um, particularly in those kind of more value and, and cyclical names. So that's how he's tilted his portfolio. He's uh, from not only a single European bank, he's now um, got about 8% of the portfolio in banks. And he thinks that um, we could see an inflation pickup. Uh, and you mentioned about the stimulus that the EU have put together, this 750 billion EU recovery fund. And John thinks that that could lead to inflation. And also, he, I think the point he makes is that he expects to see a change of, of leadership. But obviously, we all know that US equities and in particular tech have done incredibly well. But he thinks that that will change eventually. And he could see Europe and, and in particularly more cyclical companies benefiting from that, particularly if we see a V-shaped global economic recovery. How is the European sector or the mainstream European equity sector trading? I mean, I'm looking at some of the discounts, uh, double digits in quite a few cases. How does that compare to their sort of normal trading range, would you say? Are they, are they done relatively worse or, or better than other regional sectors, would you say? So there's quite a, a variation in terms of the ratings, I think it's true to say. Uh, I mean, Heft itself, the European Henderson European focus is on about a 10% discount, and there are a number in that kind of area. But equally, there's one or two on reasonably tight discounts. Uh, Bailey Gifford European Growth, uh, trading on a 2% discount at the moment, as is BlackRock Greater Europe. And it's probably no great surprise that certainly the BlackRock Fund has, has been the strongest performer over a five-year period. And Bailey Gifford European Growth, which is actually, um, it's only moved to Bailey Gifford relatively recently, um, but it's actually performed very well thereafter, um, seems to, again, have captured people's uh, imagination. But yeah, there is some quite wide discounts in that European sector. Uh, invariably, there is a correlation between those that have struggled for performance over the last three or four years. So again, as always, with all investment trusts, you know, discounts are opportunities, but then one also has to look at the reasons why they're trading at a discount and why those discounts may have widened or fallen. Perhaps it's just worth mentioning European opportunities again this week. Anyway, I mean, the discount there is, uh, has obviously gone out, I think, a little bit. Is that right? It's also about 10%. Am I right? Something like that? 9-10%, yeah. After the news about the And of course, for many years, that's traded at around power or at a premium. So I think we heard from the manager this week, did we not, that he's uh, decided to put some more money into the trust himself, which I guess you would say is a sign that he believes that the drama over Wirecard may have been overdone. But uh, on the other hand, we could say, well, he would do that, wouldn't he? But uh, it's an interesting development as well. We might just notice that one as we mentioned it last week. I think that's all we've got time for, Simon. By the time you hear this, you will have done our live podcast at the Mellow Virtual Investor Show, which is... Uh, being broadcast just uh, after we record this, but before this podcast goes out. So if you are interested in that, you will be able to get a recording of that. And I very much hope that you will continue to listen to our weekly podcast. So with that, Simon, thank you and goodbye for now. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. 
you can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.